Lachey. Lachey! My name is Jeremiah Sinclair. I'm a man not often prone to fits of emotion. In my career, I have dealt with some of the world's most depraved minds. I approach each of them with the same focus. Locate and eliminate. No emotion was involved. I'm an assassin, employed by a company known only as a corporation. They will receive requests from clients who were wronged, clients who wanted retribution. The corporation will offer it for the right price. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. For the maximum price, they could get the best. They got me. I was alerted by a call from a woman known only as My Connect, who would advise me of the situation, the target, and the unique way, if necessary, that the client wanted the target eliminated. My job was just that. A job. I did what I had to do to complete the objective. However, a few weeks ago, I had to contact my connect, which had never been done before. It was against protocol, which I was okay with, because without doing so, I would have failed in my job, which I have never done. Until now. As a result of me calling my connect, all contact with the corporation had been halted. I hadn't heard from them in nearly a week. However, I did hear from a man. Mark Treadwell contacted me about a data retrieval job. His company had created a nanotechnology that would repair a scratch on a human in seconds, a broken bone in minutes, and a bullet wound in hours. The data for the technology was stolen from the company days before the patent was to be finalized, and the company was to become unfathomably wealthy. Treadwell had given me the location of the target, the location of the data, and all the information that I needed to succeed in my job. He then told me that failure is was not, not an, an option. option. I took the information that he gave me and went to resolve the situation. I had acquired the data and eliminated the guests, which is what I have taken to calling my targets. I returned the information to Treadwell and came back home to await my family, whom I had told to take a vacation following Treadwell's intrusion into my home. Treadwell had obtained my home telephone number, which up to that point had been highly private information. Treadwell had somehow sidestepped that privacy and had spoken with my wife. My wife. A few days after I returned home, Lachey and the kids were scheduled to fly back into town. When they arrived at the airport, some men snatched my children while Treadwell, Treadwell took Lachey. He then called me to let me know that I had failed the objective. He said the data that I had obtained was either encrypted or incorrect. The only person who could have gotten the data again was dead, and the patent had, in fact, been approved for the other company. He reminded me that I had cost his group an immeasurable amount of money with my failure, and that he was going to take something in kind. 
or rather, someone. Then the phone disconnected. I sped off, driving with absolute reckless abandon. As I swerved around vehicles, I found that my soul was hollow, as was my mind and my breathing. I was in shock. I drove for what seemed like hours, further and further into the darkness, until I arrived at the Lower Ernest Cemetery. I sat in silence, looking around at my surroundings. Then I opened my door and stepped out of the vehicle. I took a look around the area, seeing nothing but noticing everything. The police sirens in the background. The air was choking, a combination of humidity and cigarette smoke. The area as a whole was decrepit and depressing. Stores that advertise the latest malt liquor, along with the biggest gang in the area, coupled with high-rise buildings with bars on the windows surrounding the cemetery. The people who lived in this part of town had hoped for a better future, but the pulse of that dream was fading with each passing year. Politicians came and went, each one reciting love letters for the more prosperous days, promising change for the area, a more competent police force, growth for the community, and improvement in the educational value. Each lie that they allowed to ooze from their lips onto the public was another sore for the community. But the community continued to vote with their hearts instead of their heads. And so, as the rest of the city improved, they were left further and further behind. Finally, the community simply shut itself off from the rest of the city. As the gangs finally took enough of a stronghold, the police no longer voyaged into the area. I walked past broken glass, past chipped headstones, past flowers that were so old that they would break apart like burnt paper if touched. I walked past headstones that had been tagged on, headstones that had been pissed on, until I reached my destination. I stopped, and I looked down at my mother's headstone. Angela Sinclair lived a life that no one would ever value or envy. She was the third child in a family that had seven, a family that could only afford to feed four people overall. She often went hungry and unnoticed, a dark speck in her mother's eye and hardly a second glance in her father's. As a child who was neither the oldest or the youngest, she was always given hand-me-downs from her older siblings, which were taken from her as soon as she grew used to them or modified them to make them her own. She was pedestrian in school, ridiculed by others for being so poor and too ashamed of her situation to speak up in class. When she was 15, she became interested in the junior ROTC because through them, she was able to have a uniform that was hers and hers alone. She took care of the uniform meticulously, washing it by hand and setting it outside the window to dry, shining her boots until they had mirror sheen. That year was the one that she spoke of the most to me when she was at home to speak of the older days. When it was an ROTC day, she would go to school with her head high, knowing that she looked good. She would hold that memory as her shining star, 
her moment where she felt like she belonged, like she was part of a family. When she was 17, she decided that she wanted that feeling to be hers for the rest of her life. So she walked into an army recruiting center. While she was there, she ran into a young man who was from a neighborhood a few miles from where she lived. He was also in the junior ROTC at their school, and although he had never taken notice of her, she knew his every breath, his every move, his everything. His name was Carl Bryant Jr., but no one called him that. Everyone simply referred to him by his ranking. He was the cadet sergeant major, the second highest possible ranking in their school. Their relationship was volatile from the beginning. He was from a family of military men, so he was at times brooding, at other times loud and boisterous. His attitude and temperament could change like the climate, from warm to freezing in the span of a conversation. She walked around his moods, around his anger, around his quiet spells. He would go silent for days at a time with no provocation. She weathered all of the days with an outward smile, happy to be away from her home, away from being unknown in her own family. He appreciated the fact that she was willing to tolerate him, to clean up behind him and cook for him. She reminded him of his mother. They married as soon as they both turned 18, and he left for boot camp in his first tour of duty. While he was gone, she wrote him letters every day, expressing her love and telling him about her day. He wrote back in boot camp, telling her about the train that he was going through and the experiences that he had. The year was 1969. He was shipped to Vietnam, and when he came home in 1972, he hung around for three months and agreed to go on another tour of duty. He flew back to Vietnam, where he finished where he started, as he put it. He came home in 1975 and got a few jobs around town, but nothing that ever stuck. His relationship with Angela quickly soured, although they continued to be intimate. At the end of 1975, he re-enlisted and flew to Korea. I was born in 1976. My mother named me Jeremiah because, as she often said, God will raise me up from this mess. God will set me free. We lived in a one-bedroom apartment that had no heat or air conditioning. It also didn't have any screens on the barred windows or front door, meaning that in the winter we froze, and in the summer, we roasted until we finally opened a window, when we were immediately set upon by mosquitoes and flies. We did that for six years. Finally, in 1982, Angela decided that she had waited long enough for God to raise us up from that mess, and decided to take matters into her own hands. She made herself over, bought some new clothes, and presented herself to the world as Autumn. She would walk me over to my grandmother's house and drop me off every evening. She would go to clubs, shows, 
concerts, anywhere she could be seen. She had gained a following as a party girl, and she loved every moment of it because it was so different from the boring, staid life that she had led as an army wife and an invisible daughter. As she told me, I spent 24 years being who everyone else wanted me to be. This time is for me. I love you, Jeremiah, but I gotta find myself. I, I gotta be free. My grandmother passed away in 1984, four years after my grandfather. Their house was shuttered, torn down, and resold. When Autumn heard the news, she wept for a few moments, then prepared me a television dinner, turned on the TV, and told me not to answer the door for anyone. Then she walked out the door and locked it. My mother was never the same after 1984. She was introduced to crack cocaine at one of the many parties that she went to, and soon it became her freedom. Autumn chased that first high like Ahab chased his white whale. Even when she was at home with me, she was never really there. It was only a matter of time before she left for good. As it was, when she was home, she was only there for a day or two, and gone for six to eight. One day in 1986, I was walking down my street, looking for Autumn. She wasn't in any of her usual locations, and I was trying to hunt her down before our entire check for the month was spent without me getting any money to buy enough food to last for a few days. I gave up, and as I turned the corner of East 23rd and Trajan, heading back towards my house, I noticed a moving van. As there weren't too many new families actually striving to move into our neighborhood, kids were rather scarce. So I stood across the street from the van and watched. A man got out of the van, and a woman, and they came to the back of the van and opened it up. A loud crash was next as all of the items that they hadn't secured in boxes or with rope fell out of the van and hit the ground. As the couple stood back and argued over who had told who to tie what up, a scrawny kid got out of the front of the van. He looked around saw me standing there watching the action, and slowly started walking towards me. He reached my side of the street, sized me up, and spoke. What you looking at, man? My parents arguing over who should have tied down a television? Huh? Them yelling about who should have let the water out of the waterbed? Hmm? <laughs> Your eyeballing is rather reckless if you ask me. I watched your parents fight over who they think was a good idea to tie down the television. And who told who that they should have let the water out the water before loading it up? Man, if you keep looking at him that hard, you're going to go blind. Look, one part of me really, 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 really wants to fight you for getting in my family business. Look here, you were the one who told me what was going on. I was just watching. Well, that's true, but you didn't have to listen. The other part of me wants to be chill with you, because in all this time, I still haven't seen another kid out here. The choice is yours, though. I can embrace you as a friend, or I can kick your butt. Both have come with a lifetime of consequences. Which do you choose? If I had known then what I knew now, 
I, I probably would have slugged him. As it was, Trevor, Solace, Salento, and I became fast friends. I was invited to dinner that very night, and when we walked to my house afterwards, he saw where I lived and what I lived in, and he didn't miss a beat. Now you walk me home. But I'm already here. Why do I have to walk you back to your house when I'm already here? Well, see, there's this show called Knight Rider. It's, it's going to be coming on pretty soon, and... I know. I watch it every week. Well, I missed an episode while we was on the road, and I, I have no clue what is going on. I fed you, and that makes it your job to get me caught up. Well, nah, I'm okay. Okay, but my mom is going to cook popcorn. Have you ever had popcorn before? Yeah, man, millions of times. Not like this. Come on. In the end, I walked him back to his house, where we watched Night Rider and ate popcorn until it was time to go to bed. As the door closed behind me, I felt a warm glow inside. So that is what a family feels like, I thought as I walked home. The next day, Solace was back, and the next, and the next after that, we became inseparable. For the next three years, he was my close companion, co-conspirator, and guaranteed dinner. I was his muscle. Even then, Solace had a problem with shutting up, and he had no problem with telling me to handle his lightweight. Man, I'm pretty sure you can't fight. So why you keep talking to me like you want to fight somebody? Hey, man, you keep bumping up against me here, I'm going to knock you out. For real, man, I ain't joking. Why your breath smell like that? Like what? Like you just ate a booty or something. Man, forget this. He would swing, and the fight would be on. And each time, I would be the one to end the fight. Every single time. I couldn't let him get beat up. He had never let me down when it was dinner time. I had even witnessed him catching a beating from his dad for sneaking me food when I was denied access. It was the least I could do for him. We were ace boom coons, and I had no one else. Autumn had finally gone over the edge and was no longer trying to mask her drug usage. She was a full-time prostitute selling what she could to get what she needed. The days where I might have seen her one day a week were long gone. I had installed a chain across the door to keep her and her friends from stealing what little items I had left. One day, I came home from school and Miss Salento was standing in front of my stoop. She didn't even let me step towards the house. She just said, Come on, Jeremiah. Let's go to my house for a while. Autumn had broken through the chain and had finally taken the rest of the items of value. She sold them and took the drugs back to the house to get high. She overdosed on my living room floor and died. The coroner wrapped her up and took her out of the front door, placed her in his truck, and left. There was a funeral, but I didn't go. So the last time I saw her was when she was being loaded up. I watched out her window, tears running down my face. 
Come on, man. Let's, let's go play some ball. No, I don't feel like it. Well, let, let's go and throw mud balls at that stuck-up girl, Tyrika. I can't stand that girl. You love her, you know. Yeah, I, I do. I'm, I'm a fool for love. What can I say? So, come on. Help me send these love notes by airmail. <sighs> Look, man. I'm really sorry about your mom. Oh, thanks. She was the only family I had left. Now I'm all alone. You ain't alone. And she wasn't your only family. You got me, right? Right, and you got me, right? As long as you live. Wait, what about when we die? Oh, uh, at, at that point, you're on your own. I'm not coming down from heaven just to visit you. How do you know you're going to heaven? Because if I don't, and all this church is for nothing, I'm haunting my mom until she convinces God to let me through. Solace was my solace. We were brothers before that moment, but from that point on, he truly became my only family. We had a bond that most people could not understand. People saw us together and wondered why this black kid and this Hispanic kid were always together. We didn't care. As long as Solace was around, I knew I had a brother. I had a family. When we were 16, there was a house party on East 39th Street. We had made plans to attend because there was no way that we weren't going to be seen. I had set out an outfit and was ready to go party. But Solace came into the house and said that his dad had told him that he wouldn't be able to go. When I asked him why, he shrugged and I didn't need to hear more. Mr. Salento was an alcoholic of the worst type, loud and obnoxious, and Miss Salento had finally given up on making their marriage work. She had told Solace that she was leaving Mr. Salento, and had asked him if he wanted to come with her. He said no, that he had to stay because I didn't have anyone else. She packed up and left the next day. You have to go to this party. Why? Because if you don't, you will never forgive yourself. You always wonder what would have happened if you'd went. Did you see Tyreka today? Man, she was looking good. She's going to be there. Everyone is going to be there. Everyone but you. Do you really want that to happen? Man, I just don't want to get in trouble. You know how Pops gets when he's mad. Man, just come on. Okay, let me get dressed. We left out to the party, and it was jumping. Girls of all shapes and sizes were there. Man, I have never seen so much titty in one place. This is like a titty buffet, and I am hungry. The party was excellent. Music was blasting, girls were dancing, and I had my choice of any girl there. I was in heaven. Hey, Sin? Yeah? It, it's getting late, man. It's already 2.30 a.m. Yeah, you might as well stay, man. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? Pops kicks my ass. And you recover. You act like y'all ain't fought before. He fought. I ran and locked the door to the bathroom. <sighs> Look, man, this is your chance with Tyreka. Look at her, man. 
Make your move. Uh, all right, man. We'll stay just a little while more. We left the party at 3.30 a.m. After I had gotten a few telephone numbers and Solace had gotten a third base with Tyreka. We walked the 16 blocks back to the house. Me dodging Solace's attempts to just once smell his finger. I'll see you later, man. I'm going to crash. You, you mean you ain't going to school? Nope. I'm tired, man. I'm going to bed. All right, man. I'll check you out after school. All right, cool. I opened my door and dragged myself to my couch slash bed. I pulled the cover up over my head, and in moments, I was asleep. I slept for 12 hours. When I awoke, it was 5 o'clock p.m., and the sky outside, instead of being dark, was awash in reds and blues. I looked out the window to see what was going on and was presented with a vision that I will never forget. Mr. Salento being led down the stairs in handcuffs. I hopped up and ran out the door, pushing through the crowd of people who had gathered on the sidewalk in front of my house. As I got closer to the front of the crowd, I heard someone mumble. Well, at least the kid isn't suffering. I ran past the police and up the stairs to their apartment. I was greeted by yellow tape. Police were milling around, taking pictures of the room, of the walls, of the body. Solace. I pushed into the room where I was immediately grabbed by an officer. You can't be in here. That's my brother. She stepped out of my way. What happened? Apparently, the boy came home this morning after being out all night at a party. He and his father argued, and the boy left for school. His name is Trevor, not the boy. Trevor left for school, and while he was gone, his father drank. When Trevor got home from school, they argued some more, and Trevor said he was moving out. The father said, and I quote, you aren't going to leave me like your bitch of a mom did, and assaulted Trevor using his fist and a weapon, which we have already confiscated. He then sat down and, as he said, watched TV while Trevor led to death. What was the weapon? A knife, serrated blade. He stabbed him in the abdomen. Okay. I stumbled out of the apartment and into the street. All I kept thinking about was that my brother, my only friend, was dead. And it was my fault. I told him to go to the party. I told him to stay out late. I did not have his back when I should have known that a confrontation was coming. I had failed as a friend. And for my failure, I lost a brother. I wept for four days. After that, I went to the prison and spoke with Mr. Salento. I asked him why, and he shrugged. I asked him if he was sorry. He shrugged again. 
I told him that I had brought a care package with me that was delivered to a cell. He nodded. I could see that the conversation was over, so I left. Mr. Salento hung himself in a cell a few days later. I didn't go to his funeral. I didn't care. Solace was buried the next week. I had requested that he be placed in the grave directly next to my mom. My request was granted. His mom came to the funeral, and she wouldn't come near me. I'm not quite sure who she blamed more for his death. Me or herself. But I was pretty sure that it was me. A place arose on Solace's grave. I came here whenever I was in town, and I would make sure that his plot was well maintained. I did the same for my mom. The last time that I had failed, I lost a brother. I didn't want to believe that I had lost my wife, too, that my family was gone, and that my beloved was dead. I would not believe it until I saw it. I needed to see her demise with my own two eyes. sat for a moment, heart racing, and assessed the scene. There were no police. There were no ambulances. There was no tape. And there was no body. There was no body. And who would be foolish enough to murder someone directly in front of a busy airport terminal? With so many witnesses and security, he would have been apprehended immediately. Unless... Unless, unless she isn't dead. My phone rang. I looked to see if there was a number, but as expected, it was blocked. I answered. Hello? Daddy? This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name. Thank you.